This is, <laughs> this is the end of our time in this building, and we'll uh, just do what we always do, do the Word of God today, and then we'll just do it in a different place next week. So today we're doing uh, Module 5, Session 3, the Major Biblical Covenants, and <clears throat> I'm having a bit of a, uh, a middle-aged moment here. Have we done Mosaic Covenants yet? Say no. Okay, good. <laughs> All right. Uh, the Mosaic Covenant, because that's what I had prepared. Um, you would have gotten it again anyway. So let's go ahead and pray, and then we're going to look at uh, one of my favorite covenants in the Bible. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for this Lord's Day. We breathe in the sweet air of the grace of God, commemorating the day upon which our Savior conquered death. And every Sunday, we remember His resurrection, which was made possible, of course, by His death, which accomplished atonement for us. And so this day, Lord, we gather with joy and yet with sobriety. We gather with happiness in the Lord and yet with a sense of somberness of worship. We gather with a sense of being able to boldly approach Your throne and yet we also gather with the fear of God, as is appropriate to your people. This morning, Lord, as we look at the Mosaic Covenant, I pray, Lord, that it would be a blessing to our hearts to see one of the vehicles by which you have moved along your redemptive plan for history. We pray that you would bless our time together. In Christ's name, amen. So, just a couple of comments as we uh, take on what I would say, other than the New Covenant, is the most complex covenant uh, <clears throat> in the Bible. A couple of things that I think might be encouraging to you. Uh, first of all, uh, everything I'm going to do this morning is, is pretty basic. And while I would love to uh, spend a lot of time talking about how the, how the Christian interacts with the Law of Moses, and we'll do a little bit of that, I wanted to remind you and point out to you that in the introductory five messages um, I did a couple of years ago on the Pentateuch, one of the messages is the Christian and, law, and the law of Moses and how those two intersect. That's such a, a misunderstood area and there's basically two major extremes that are both wrong. On one extreme, you have uh, those that would be in the covenant theology uh, uh, camp that would say that much of the law of Moses still applies to us today, um, and they use a division, the, the three-part division of the law that we've talked about before, the, the civic, the ceremonial, and the moral, which is not found anywhere in Scripture. That's purely a man-made division. On the other hand, on the other side, you have those that say that the law is, is, is uh, extinct, that it's bad, that it's terrible. And they, they would be the camp that call themselves, we're a New Testament church. Which, first of all, there isn't any other kind, um, because there was no church before uh, the day of Pentecost. Um, but their, their reasoning for saying that is that they don't consider the law of God. They just really don't think it has much value. And so they um, would be on that other extreme. So where do we fall in there? I think that message in the, the Pentateuch introduction, I can't remember which one. It's one in the, the first five in the series called Pentateuch One. Um, but I think it'll be helpful to you. Hopefully some of what we'll do this morning will be helpful to you as well. But I think this is, in the Christian church, one of the most misunderstood and, and just ununderstood, if I can coin that term, 
um, of the covenants. It just feels dark and a little bit scary, and we don't know how to use it exactly. And so um, generally, somewhere in between where most Christians tend to fall, if you ask them, uh, you know, how many out of 10 Christians would say the Ten Commandments are still good? I think nine out of 10 minimum would say, yeah, we're still under the Ten Commandments. I'm going to show you this morning that we're not. And we pick and choose. Um, we use terms from the Old Testament, like tithing. That's an Old Testament law under which we are not uh, bound. Um, we use Old Testament uh, ideas uh, like Sabbath. Well, Sunday is the Christian Sabbath. Well, sort of, but not under the law. So how do we understand this? So we're going to take kind of a broad flyover. I want to start with the origin of the Mosaic Covenant. And I'm going to start with this. This isn't on the notes up there, but I'm not a big fan of the term Mosaic Covenant. The Noahic Covenant was God's covenant with Noah. The Abrahamic Covenant was God's covenant with Abraham. The Mosaic Covenant was not God's covenant with Moses. It was God's covenant with Israel. I prefer to call it the Sinaitic Covenant or the Israelite Covenant. And so we'll use all those terms interchangeably, but... Um, since 10 billion theological books have Mosaic Covenant in it, I don't think we're going to undo that one in this lifetime. So we'll just stay with Mosaic Covenant, but just know that that's probably not the best term. What's the origin? God saved Israel from Egypt, and because of this, He, in essence, conquered uh, Israel. And by by being the conquering king, He has rights over her. This is based on God's covenant to Abraham and to the patriarchs. Deuteronomy 4, 36 through 38 explains this. What's the nature of the Mosaic Covenant? It follows the form of a suzerain-vassal treaty. The treaty between a, a powerful king, the suzerain, and the conquered subjects, the vassals. And this is a two-way conditional agreement. The king, the, the suzerain, promises to bless obedience and promises to curse disobedience. And so there's punishment for disobedience for Israel is, a, is an actual possibility and a reality. The Mosaic Covenant didn't replace, it didn't nullify the Abrahamic Covenant. It lives under the umbrella of the Abrahamic Covenant. We've said that before. The Abrahamic Covenant is the umbrella under which all the other covenants of the Bible fall with the exception of the Noahic Covenant which came before it. And so because of that, the the Mosaic Covenant is just part of the Abrahamic Covenant. Which part is it? The part where God said that he would raise up a nation for himself uh, from Abraham. That's the Mosaic Covenant. So let's just stay kind of broad here. What's the essence of the law? Well, first of all, we'll just give a broad definition. The law consists of rules of life to govern God's covenant people in Canaan. It regulated their everyday religious, social, economic, and civil life. I want to tell you there is one key word in the law over and over and over again, which I think we need to pay attention to. And I don't have, this is not in my notes. That key word starts with L and ends with and. It is land. You cannot separate the law of God from the idea of land. Because the entire law of God is about how to live in the land. And so any theological system that says, well, God's plan for Israel in a land is nullified now. There's a major problem with that. The entire law of Moses is about how to live in the land. 
boundary laws, what to do when your, your neighbor's animal uh, wanders into your field. All the ways we live together as neighbors in the land, it is not just theoretical, it is not just spiritualized. It is about actual physical dirt. Eretz, land, dirt. How to live there. And so you can't separate that out. It's so important. And this is especially important because much of the Mosaic law gets transferred. Not, not, it doesn't carry over, but it gets transferred in the sense of reiterated in the new covenant. When we say, well, we're not under the Ten Commandments anymore, people get shocked by that. Are you saying that you, you can murder? No, I'm saying that the, the co- command, you shall not murder, is reiterated and restated in the new covenant as well. But it's not under the old covenant. And we'll talk about that in a little more detail here. How many laws are there? According to Orthodox Jewish tradition, there are 613 commandments in the law of Moses. And you might say, well, why don't you just count them? Well, because there's disagreement as to whether a certain phrase is one law, two laws, or three laws. But 613 is a pretty good number. They're divided into 248 affirmative laws, things you are to do, and 365 negative laws, things you are not to do. So you get one for every day of the year. Don't do this every day. The Ten Commandments make up a small fraction of the law. And in fact, the other 603 laws all fall under one of the Ten Commandments, every single one of them. The Ten Commandments is a summary of the other 603 laws. How is the law unified? Well, again, and we've talked about this before, but I want to make sure you get this. It's common to divide the Mosaic Law into two or three parts. The moral law, the Ten Commandments, ceremonial, and some add civil law. I think they can be helpful for study. Uh, In studying the Bible, we do create distinctions just to help us understand things. But there's no scriptural authority for this. You can't base a theological system on dividing the law into three parts and saying that the moral part has carried over. There's no basis to say that. Jesus fulfilled the law at the cross. It was done. It was finished. And so the law is one law. It's unified. Uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, This division system is often wrongly used to speak of certain parts of the law carrying over into the New Covenant and the New Testament. But Scripture doesn't affirm this division. Um, Except for Hebrews 8, verse 10, and Hebrews 10, verse 16, law in the New Testament is always singular. It's one body. It's not laws. It's law. Scripture doesn't affirm this division at all, James 2.10, Galatians 5.3 talks about the whole law. Romans 6.14, you are not under law, but under grace. And so there's really no basis for that. Now, sometimes uh, we dispensationalists are falsely accused of saying that in the Old Testament, you were saved by keeping the law. In the New Testament, you're saved by grace. And that's simply not true. I don't know a single dispensationalist who actually believes that because that nullifies the gospel. So just to be clear, the Mosaic Law cannot save. And it was never intended to. It was never intended to save anyone. Galatians 2.16, we know that the person is justified, is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Galatians 2.21, I do not nullify the grace of God for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Doesn't that make sense? If I'm going to be saved by keeping the law, then why did Christ die? 
Galatians 3.11, Romans 3.20 also affirm those same truths. And someone might say, well, but in the Old Testament, people kept the law and that's how they were saved. There's not one single instance of anybody in the Old Testament being recorded as being saved by keeping the law. Even Abraham. Uh, there's two major issues with Abraham. First of all, Abraham, Genesis 15.6 says he was saved by faith. That's the first issue. What's the second issue? There wasn't the law of Moses yet when Abraham got saved. So we can't have been saved by the law. So the Mosaic law wasn't for salvation. Listen carefully. It was for sanctification. It was to give a rule of life for how to live in obedience to the Lord in the land. It was the means by which God would bless his people as Israel's chosen uh, nation. And so under law meant this rule of life. It's not a different salvation system at all. So how did the law relate to Israel? The Mosaic law in relation to Israel. The law is given to Israel alone. Exodus 19.3. Right there nullifies any attempt in the church of Jesus Christ to apply the law uh, forcefully and authoritatively as a rule of life. Now, do we apply the law uh, philosophically in terms of this is what God said here. He, God never changes, so he says the same thing in the New Testament. Of course we do. I, I preach in the Old Testament half of my ministry minimum. I preach way more Old Testament than I ever have New Testament because the law of God is good. Psalm 119 says this in 176 different ways. But is it the rule by which God will bless us? No. If it was, and we want to be consistent, then we need to keep all the feasts. We need to start sacrificing animals in our parking lot. I guess it'd be easy since we're about to leave this parking lot. We could leave a big mess and then leave. That's not the rule of life for us. It cannot save. It's, it's for Israel alone. The law had many purposes. One of them is to reveal God's character. Leviticus 11.45, For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. Therefore you shall be holy, for I am holy. God's character, God's holiness is the basis for the entire law. This is the value for us studying the law. It reveals the character of God who never changes. The same God who said, who said you shall not murder always has had that standard because he is not a murderer and so forth. The law also signified Israel's special relationship to God. Exodus 19, 5 and 6. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. It showed God's grace in that he decided to form a nation and to set guidelines for the affairs of life and for worship. And it set them apart. I'll just give you a few sample laws. The law guided all areas of worship, including calling for multiple feasts, sacrifices, and gatherings, convocations. The law provided an incredibly rich worship life for this people. Um, The families, there were basically three weeks of the year you took off just to worship. And it was at God's command. Uh, And that doesn't include all the more minor feasts and and festivals and sacrifices. Laws obligating Israel to love all under the covenant were important. 
They were not to shame one another. They were not to take revenge on one another. They were to not to bear a grudge. Do you realize that the judicial system under the law of God made prisons uh, unnecessary? Because you either reformed a repentant sinner or you executed him. That's what you did. Uh, what did you do with a thief? A thief was sold into slavery to the family he stole from until he pays back everything. And you know what the law had to provide for? The law had to provide for the fact that sometimes those thieves came to love that family so much that they said, I just want to serve them for the rest of my life. And so they would take him to the city gate, drive an all through their ear that says, you are, you are a slave in this family forever. It was a blessing to them. No prison system. Their judicial system was phenomenal. They had laws protecting the poor and the unfortunate. Orphans and widows were protected, not by a government system, but by the people. The people were to care for the poor. You left parts of your fields for the poor. You left parts of the vines for the poor. You weren't allowed to go back and, and, and get those little corners that you missed. You were to leave the corners. The, the, a family that was down on their luck, so to speak, could just walk around during harvest time and gather food for the night. Phenomenal system. How were they to treat Gentiles? Don't judge Israel by how Jews treated Gentiles in the New Testament. The way Jews treated Gentiles in the New Testament was utterly despicable and sinful because instead of being the light to the Gentiles that they were supposed to be, they just, they just degenerated to looking down on them and seeing them as dogs and as, and as those that were horrible. Not in the law, though. How are you to treat Gentiles? You were to love the stranger. You were to not wrong them. You were to not cheat them. And any Gentile was welcome to become a Jew. They were welcome to become part of the nation. And that's how you, if I could put, use a New Testament term, that's how you evangelized. That you said, you, you love the Lord, you want to obey His law, why don't you become a Jew and live among us? And the law provided for that. How about family? Multiple explanations of honoring your father and your mother. The joy and the sanctity of marriage. You can only marry within the covenant people of God. Uh, how about this? A new husband was free of military duty for one year. Now, why is that? And there's lots of jokes about a one-year-long honeymoon and that sort of thing. No, that was to make sure that that family had sons to carry on their name. That a man wasn't killed in battle before he had a son. And so it was protective of the family. Our entire understanding of family from the New Testament is based solely on our understanding of family from the Old Testament. Um, Ephesians 5 simply quotes, uh, Ephesians 5 and 6 simply quotes the Old Testament. How about women? The law of God is the most protective of women of any law system in history, to this date as well. Husbands were to give and provide all things for their wives. A man could not speak evil publicly of his wife. Widows were to be given children by means of their, their husband's brother so that uh, she wouldn't be left destitute. And I know for us that doesn't, that doesn't sit right, but in that system it was necessary and it was a good thing. Both father and mother were to be honored and revered. It's only when you step outside the law of God in the rest of the world that women are denigrated, enslaved, murdered, raped, and so forth. In, in Israel, that wasn't the case. They were protected and they were honored and they were revered. How about dietary laws? Dietary laws were primarily to show God's people as being different. 
that they, are, that they were set apart. But with our knowledge today, we, we do know that God protected Israel from some unsafe eating practices. We don't, they didn't have this word then, but we have the word now. They couldn't eat roadkill. You know, I guess if in your chariot you ran over something, you weren't allowed to take it home uh, for dinner. But primarily the dietary laws simply showed that they were different. How about business practices? You ready for this? All loans were no interest loans. You weren't allowed to make money off of each other based on somebody else's desperation and need. You weren't to take as collateral anything that the borrower needed to live. Even in the New Testament, we see that, that if you take somebody's cloak as collateral, give it back to them before the end of the day. It's just a symbol. Fraud in measuring or weighing merchandise and produce was, was punished severely. And you were not to demand repayment of a debt that the poor man cannot pay. Every seven years, every seven years, the Sabbath year, all debts were null and void. Now, in year six, probably most people weren't loaning a lot of money out. But what did that do? It made a society that lived as brothers and sisters, not lived as competing consumers. What a a marvelous thing. How about employees and slaves? To employees and slaves, you pay what you owe when you owe it to an employee. When you're freeing a slave who's working off a debt, you were to send him away with gifts and money and provisions. You were to treat him like a child and make sure that he had enough to make it in life. You were to rescue slaves who had fled from other more oppressive nations. You weren't to mistreat slaves and to treat them with kindness instead and generosity. Um, Jewish history and Jewish mythology, if we can put it that way, is filled with legends of slaves escaping other nations and coming to Israel and saying, I'll be a slave here because here slaves are treated like human beings. How about animals? You don't muzzle a beast who's working in the field. You weren't to mistreat animals. And we get this New Testament principle all the way in 1 Timothy 5 that you don't muzzle the ox while he's treading the grain. And we talked about this a few months ago. But the reason was that not every farmer owned an ox. And a, and a couple of times a year, you needed an ox to help you with your harvest, to help you with the processing of your grain. Uh, and they would tread this grain e- either in a circle or in a little field. And if you borrowed somebody else's ox, sometimes you wanted to sin and you didn't want them eating a little bit of your grain, so you would put a muzzle on it. Both Old and New Testament says don't do that. That it's, it's unkind to the person who owns the animal, it's unkind to the animal. And how about this? All the judicial laws and protections, if you, if you put them all together, it created a society that if they had simply chosen to live under this law and done so consistently, it created a society that was based in the worship of God. Can you imagine? Just imagine if all of Bakersfield for three weeks of the year shut down to worship God. What a society. Um, can you imagine a society in which uh, theft is repaid either by death, if it's unrepentant, or repaid by that person repenting and repaying back sometimes four and five times over whatever they stole. There wasn't a lot of theft because the, the deterrence was, was, uh, was huge. It was an amazing society to live in. All the laws, all the protections. A fully functioning covenant community was an amazing place to live. And, and let me put it this way. Our laws that we have 
in our country, for the most part, there, there are a lot of good laws. And they make way too many of them. I, I know people have said we would pay every legislator a million dollars apiece just to quit going to work. Just don't go and just stay away and don't make any more laws. But for the most part, we have a lot of good laws. Uh, and most people won't acknowledge that they're basically based on, on Christian principles. However, one nation under God is a myth. How, how long since America has been a Christian nation? We have never been a Christian nation. No Christian nation has ever existed on earth. It will in the millennium on the day that Christ executes every single unbeliever. And for that moment in time, every believer on earth is a, or every person on earth is a believer. Then you have Christian nations, all of them. But we have never been truly one nation under God. The difference here is this is a covenant community. All the laws are pointed upward. I'm going to treat this animal that wandered onto my land with kindness. I'm going to feed it. I'm going to water it. Then I'm going to take it back to its owner and probably bring a loaf of bread and a basket of fruit over to the owner just to be kind. Why? Not because it's the law, but because my God is watching. And my God is, a part, is the center of our covenant community. What a tremendous gift. This is why Psalm 119 says so many times, the law of the Lord is good. It refreshes the heart. It rejoices the heart. The Mosaic Law also defined proper behavior. We're just on the third bullet point, sorry. Third or fourth. It defined proper behavior within the covenant relationship. I said this a moment ago, but the Ten Commandments acted as the actual covenant. That was the contract. That was uh, page one, so to speak. It was the the, uh, summary. The assumption that there were five commandments on each tablet divided into duty to love God in the first five and divided in the duty to love man in the second, doesn't account for the covenant nature of the commandments. Now, if you grew up in Sunday school, I almost guarantee you, you did at least one coloring page with Moses holding the the two tablets, right? And what do you usually have? For some reason, they use Roman numerals. I don't get that because those weren't invented for a long time. But you have on one side, Roman numerals, one, two, three, four, five, and six, seven, eight, nine, ten, right? As if... Like a seven-year-old coloring that, say, why am I coloring the letter I and then two letter I's and then three letter I's? They don't know that. How many commandments were on each tablet? Ten on each. This was a covenant. This is a contract. A contract at a high level. When a covenant was made, a copy was made for each party. And so two complete copies is much more likely One party took one to their home and another party took one to their home uh, separately. Now, this is God making covenant with Israel. And so where did both copies go? They went in the Ark of the Covenant, which is basically God's throne on earth. And so uh, my dream is for our children's ministry to have a biblically accurate picture of Moses with Ten Commandments on each one uh, written out. Uh, Probably on both sides, by the way, because the commandments are long. So it was probably inscribed on both sides. The Ark of the Covenant was also the place of divine atonement, the mercy seat of God. And so it's important to note that the law of God, which was already predicted by Moses in Deuteronomy to be broken, the law of God is never, never separated from the grace of God to save. The law was at the mercy seat. The two go together. There were penalties for breaking the law. Israel was a theocracy. 
A theocracy ruled by Yahweh. We've never lived under, under a theocracy. We say one nation under God, but if you have a godless president and godless governors, which we primarily do, we're not a nation under God. You're only a nation under God if the leaders are accountable to God. We will live under a theocracy again when Christ returns. I'm going to spend a significant part of our later morning talking about that. The first four commandments carry the death penalty for transgression. And overall, out of the 613 laws, 19 of them carry the death penalty. There's 19 ways that you could die. And you might say, oh, that's cruel. Let me ask you a question. As you watch the news, or in this case, uh, have quit watching the news, what would happen to our society if true, actual justice began happening? We would be relieved. The righteous are relieved when justice happens. We don't have a death penalty in our country. Uh, We have the occasional execution that makes the front page, but we don't have a death penalty. A death penalty would be to take all of the death rows in our nation and empty them in a week. That's a death penalty. In Israel, you could die by being a teenager who cursed his mother. I guarantee you, every mother and father told their five-year-olds and four-year-olds and three-year-olds, you will respect me because it, it will save your life. What does the book of Proverbs say about parenting? Don't spare the rod because if you don't, if you don't spank your children, you will kill them. And under the law, that's actually true. There's no recorded instance of a teenager being stoned to death in Israel. But I guarantee you that that held a lot of sway with every family. So what you had was a society that included penalties for breaking the law. And occasionally they were carried out. But it told everyone else, live under God's blessing. It's the same choice we tell parents to make, to have their children make. You have two choices, kids. You can live under my blessing by obeying the law of my house or you can live under my curse by disobeying the law of my house. I can make your life a glorious thing or I can make it unbearable. Which one would you like? Uh, I'd like the blessing side, please. That's what God did with Israel. So what was the law for? There's many purposes to the law. I'll give you five. The first one is it reveals and exposes sin. It reveals and exposes sin. Romans 3.20, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Romans 5.20, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. It increased Israel's responsibility and the seriousness of failing to meet the stipulations of the covenant. So what does the law do? It, It drives people to see their sin, that they can't keep the law. And in that sense, the law can be useful to help us understand our own sin. The second purpose, it was a temporary guardian for Israel until Christ came. Galatians 5, 23 through 25. Now before faith came, and that's not to say that that people weren't saved by faith, but he's talking about a new covenant faith. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. It's the third purpose. The law was a grateful response of those who had already been saved by faith. It's a grateful response. And this is so, so important. You remember our our two circles. We've drawn these in the air uh, a thousand times. You have the big circle. Everybody descended from Abraham. 
that's Israel, generally speaking. Then you have the little circle. Inside the big circle, everybody saved by faith who is descended from Abraham. That's true Israel, according to Romans 9, verse 6. All of those in the little circle, the law of God, those are the type of people that would, would have loved and agreed with Psalm 119 that the law of the Lord is good, rejoicing the heart. Because what the law did was it gave 613 different ways to love God. And we've experienced this. I, I experienced this as a pastor. I get this question all the time from, from some of you. You come up and say, how can I express my gratitude for teaching the word and so forth? That there is a yearning in the heart to return thanks to somebody who has done something for you. And God gave 613 ways for the faithful Israelite to love the Lord and to obey the law and to do so as a grateful response. Israel is chosen by grace. The Ten Commandments begins with the preamble, I am Yahweh your God, that is, that is choosing by grace. And obedience was the means for those saved by faith to express their fear and their faith, their love and their devotion to Yahweh. It was the means by which a very specific generation of Israel would experience the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant in the, what's the key word in all the law? Land. In the land. That was the, the fourth purpose. That's how they could experience blessing. And the fifth purpose, it's a witness to Gentiles of God's character. A Gentile was meant to look at the law of God and say, I want part of that. I want to be part of that people. I want to be part of a people whose God actually speaks to them. I mean, uh, I, my God is one I carved out of a piece of wood I cut down last year. I want a God that speaks to me 613 different times. Now, this is when we get into the negative side. There have been perversions of the Mosaic Law. In the New Testament, one of the biggest, most giant spiritual battles in the New Testament were Jews trying to make the law a means of salvation. Romans 9 addresses this. Um, Acts 15 addresses this. This is a works-based righteousness. You had a group called the Judaizers. The Judaizers essentially said, if you want to be a Christian, that's great, but you've got to become a Jew first. And, and for men, you have to be circumcised. Only then can you come to faith in Christ. Major battle in the, uh, in the New Testament. The book of Galatians calls that a different gospel. It's absolute heresy. Another perversion. Some Jews emphasize the external rituals at the expense of the heart. Micah chapter 6 talks about this. Isaiah chapter 1 talks about this. Isaiah chapter 2 talks about this. That as long as I do the things, as long as I do the sacrifices, as long as I go through the motions, then God must be happy with me. That was the general overall feel and the uh, belief of Israel as a whole, particularly their leaders in the time of Christ. Jesus would say that God is his father and they would say, we have Abraham as our father. We have Moses as we obey Moses. We know Moses. And they were proud of their external rituals and, and Jesus would excoriate them and he would say things, nice things, like you go out and make one convert and you make him twice a son of hell as you are even though they were supposedly obeying the law. And so external rituals at the expense of the heart. And of course, we have that same problem today. At Grace Bible Church, there are undoubtedly a few who come to church thinking that they're pleasing God and their ears have not been opened to the gospel yet. 
Every church has those. Some have a higher percentage than others. If a church has enough people that are coming to church because they think they're pleasing God, then that church becomes basically useless and hopeless. And so we have the same problem today. Another perversion of the law, I've already mentioned this. Some Jews viewed the law as a means of ethnocentrism against Gentiles, that we're better than you. Is there a book in the Old Testament that kind of kicks that belief in the teeth? How about the book of Jonah? book of Jonah is basically God saying, Israel is being horrible and disobedient. They are breaking my covenant. So I'm going to go to your enemy, Assyria. And I'm going to go to the capital, Nineveh. And I'm going to preach a gospel of repentance to them. And in the shortest sermon in all time, for all, uh, Jonah says, repent or in 40 days you're done. And the whole city repented. And the funny thing is Jonah was mad about it. These Gentiles are repenting. Jonah, ironically, is the worst prophet in history and the most successful preacher ever. How does that go together? It's God showing that the law is not a means to push out Gentiles. The law was to welcome Gentiles. Well, I want to uh, finish our time, if we can do this. I, I don't know if I'll have time to finish this today, but I want to talk about this important issue, why Christians are not under the law. And I'm going to give you 10 reasons. First of all, why is this important? <clears throat> the reason it's important is that I, I think this is one of the biggest areas of confusion in the church, and it there's there's a, a muddiness to it. The Old Testament maybe isn't preached enough or a broad understanding of the Old Testament isn't preached. And generally speaking, we kind of pick and choose um, that, yeah, well, we like certain laws and so we're, we're going to just pick out the things we like. I, I think evangelicalism in general suffers horribly from a, a terrible propensity to pull Scripture out of context. This is the norm in evangelicalism to... Have to, to just quote a scripture and to apply it to your life because, of course, all the Bible is all about you. And so we want to push back against that with clear understanding. I'm going to give you these 10 reasons why Christians are not under the law. First of all, the Bible says so. The Bible explicitly states that the Christian is not under law. Romans 6.14, Romans 6.15, Galatians 5.18, 1 Corinthians 9, 20 and 21, other places. It's very, very explicit. Second reason, the New Testament teaches that believers have died to the Mosaic Law. Romans 7, 4, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. You can also see Romans 7, verse 6, Galatians two nineteen. We've died to the law. Now, if you're a Gentile, you were never under the law to begin with. But Paul is writing at least that particular phrase to Christian Jews. The third reason, Christ fulfilled the law. He brought it to the end. Romans 10.4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Why is that so important? That encompasses the doctrine of justification. If the law of God is still good, then what was the point of Jesus living a perfect life under the law so that you don't have to? Then he died for nothing. He lived for nothing. So fourth reason, the Mosaic Covenant, including the Ten Commandments, they have faded away. They've given way to the superior new covenant. In 2 Corinthians 3, 6-11, Paul describes himself as a servant of a new covenant. 
Let me put it to you this way. Even in the Old Testament, Jeremiah 31, uh, Ezekiel, multiple places, when Israel is in trouble and Israel is in anguish and Israel is being judged by God, what does he do to comfort them? Does he say, someday I'll bring you back to your land? Yes. Someday I'll bring you back to your land so that you can go back to the system of law as it was and then fail again. No. What does he promise them to give them the most hope? He says, someday I'm bringing a new covenant where the law will be written on your hearts and you will obey because the Spirit of God has turned you into a new creation. If Jeremiah had read Second uh, Corinthians five seventeen. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. It would have blown his mind. Oh, that's what I was talking about when I wrote in Jeremiah. And so it's faded away. It's given way to a superior new covenant. Here's a fifth reason. If I can get the little thing to work here. Fifth reason coming right up is that a change in priesthood means a change in law. We have a whole different priesthood. Uh, Hebrews 7.12, the Levitical priesthood was essentially linked to the Mosaic law. And so any basic change in the priesthood requires a corresponding change in the law. Christ has a different priesthood. He is a priest according to Melchizedek, not Aaron. And so a change in law has occurred. Uh, Do I, as a Christian in the New Testament era, do I believe in priests? Absolutely. The church must have priest. One, Jesus Christ, our great high priest. It's a different priesthood. There's a sixth reason. The law has become obsolete. It's not my word, it's scriptures. Hebrews 8.13 And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. It doesn't mean it's bad. It doesn't mean it's useless. It means it's no longer in effect. If you've ever refinanced your house, you sign all new documents. Isn't that fun? You, you show up to the, to the title company and you have a stack of documents like, like eight inches thick and you just ready, get your hand ready to start signing these. Listen carefully. The documents you're signing are in essence almost identical to the original contract, but the original contract is null and void. That's why we can say that so much of the Old Testament law has been transferred to the law of Christ. I would make the argument that nine out of the Ten Commandments, with the exception being the, the law of Sabbath, has been transferred over. Why not the law of Sabbath? Because the law of Sabbath was a sign of the Old Covenant. That was a symbol. We have a different symbol, and that is the Lord's table. So the law has become obsolete. There's a seventh reason. Mine are lettered for some reason and not numbered, so I have to keep counting. Seventh reason. The law was a temporary institution. It lasted from 430 years after the Abrahamic covenant to the coming of Christ. It had a specific expiration date. Galatians 3, 17 through 19. The law expired at a certain time. We've all signed contracts that expire, right? They, they go away at a certain time. You would never sign a contract that says you will keep paying X amount of dollars for this house for the rest of your life. Well, hang on. I, don't, I want one that expires, Eighth reason, Christ abolished the Mosaic law with his death. Again, the law expired, Ephesians 2.15. Some might ask, well, when did the law end? It ended at the cross. It was done at that moment. 
And in fact, as kind of a looking ahead, the night before Jesus, when he instituted the Lord's table, he said he took this cup after supper, saying this cup is the new covenant in what? In my blood. When did the new covenant get inaugurated? At the cross. When Christ said it is finished and he uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, new covenant begins. Here's a ninth reason. The New Testament never calls for the inflicting of penalties of the Old Testament variety for those who break the law. A law without penalties is not a law, right? What's the penalty for incest in the Mosaic law? It's stoning to death. Leviticus 20 verse 11. What's the penalty for unrepentant sexual immorality in the church? It is disfellowshipping from the church. 1 Corinthians 5. It's, it's different. We don't stone people to death. People say, well, we're, we're still under the law of God. Well, I haven't seen anybody get executed for adultery in a long time. And then one more reason. The Jerusalem Council of Acts 15 declared that Gentile believers did not have to keep the Mosaic Law. And the Jerusalem Council was comprised of the apostles. And they were Jews. And they said to Gentiles, you don't have to keep the law. It would have been absolutely the ultimate opportunity for Jewish believers, apostles, to say, yes, you must keep the law. But they said no. And so that would have been the best opportunity. So those are 10 theological reasons that we're not under the law. Now, there are some challenging passages to this, and I'll just give you a couple of them here. Matthew 5.17, Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I did not come to abolish them, but fulfill them. And you say, wait a minute. I thought you just said the law ended at the cross. It did. But when Jesus uses the word abolish, it's in the sense of getting rid of something that's bad. Never once did Jesus say that he got rid of something bad. He fulfilled something that was good. He finished it. Abolish in the sense of fulfilling and finishing its purpose, of course, is valid. How about Romans 3.31? Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Uh, Some would say, aha, well, the Mosaic law is a rule of life for the believer. Now, ironically, the people who say that have never come even close to living out the law. It's not possible. But it contradicts Romans 6, Romans 7, the entire book of Hebrews. Uh, Some would say that, again, this is the moral law being operational. But again, that distinction is is foreign to the Bible. Better possibilities would be Romans 3, 19 and 20 says, we uphold the law because it reveals sin. The law is good. Um, <clears throat> I, I'm not a total fan of this, but the evangelistic system way of the master, the whole system is to take people and to walk them through the Ten Commandments and show them, have you ever uh, stolen anything? Have you ever had lustful thoughts? Have you been going through the law and showing them that they have, they have broken God's law? And there's some usefulness there. Probably the best possibility is that Christ is the perfect fulfiller of the law. To say, do we overthrow the law? No, we don't. I think the best possibility is that simply we're saying the law wasn't ever bad. The law is good. We don't overthrow it. We're seeing it fulfilled in Christ. And how about Romans 7, 22? For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. What does that mean? Well, Romans seven twenty five, Paul says, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, though with my flesh I serve the law of sin. So what, what does that mean? I delight in the law of God in my inner being. It may be uh, Paul acting out the part 
of a, an Old Testament saint without the Holy Spirit indwelling him saying, I love the law. I just can't keep it. And so that, that would probably be the best uh, observation there. So we'll finish up with this. I think we actually have time to do this. What about then the law that's restated in the New Testament? I'll give you a few examples. Probably the most common example is Ephesians 6, 2, and 3. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. The New Testament, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, reiterates commands from the Mosaic Law, but that doesn't imply a continuation. That implies a restatement. Remember, the, the old house contract and the new house contract, lots of similar language, but completely uh, different contracts. What do you do with your, your first house contract when you refinance? You tear it up. It's worthless. It doesn't, make any, it doesn't do anything except to give you fuel for your fireplace. Nine of the ten original commandments are restated. Again, the Sabbath is the exception. That's the sign of the Mosaic Covenant. However, this is not in my notes, big old however, if you read uh, Ezekiel 40 through 47 through 48, <clears throat> guess what's coming back in the millennial reign of Christ? A Sabbath law. Is there anybody in this room that would push back against a law that says one day a week will be devoted to God? Nobody would. You know why? Because we're already living it out, aren't we? We're already living out the Sabbath law. We don't say it's a law right now because it's a sign of the old covenant. It would contradict, uh, in a way, the, the, the more perfect sign which we have, which is the, uh, the Lord's table. The death penalty for not honoring one's parents. Exodus 21, that's dropped. You're now into the new covenant with new covenant promises. Uh, long life in the land of Canaan, under the honor your father and mother category, long life in the land of Canaan has changed to long life on the earth. The children uh, honoring and obeying their parents is a sign of the fruit of salvation, so they'll live long in God's blessings on the new earth. Read any statistics about this, and you will see that children who grow up disobeying their parents on a regular basis die younger, statistically speaking. They just do. And so there's a, there's a moral principle there. So what we live under is the law of Christ. The Old Testament believer expressed love and devotion to God and demonstrated the fruit of salvation by obedience to the law of Moses. The New Testament believer expresses love and devotion to God and demonstrates the fruit of salvation by obedience to the law of Christ. What is the law of Christ? It is the teachings of Jesus and all the New Testament writers Jesus promised the apostles in the upper room uh, the night before he was going to be arrested. He said, I will bring to your remembrance all that I have taught you. What do we have in that? We have Romans and Galatians and Ephesians, all that was taught uh, to the apostles. The law of Christ involves a huge element of love and it involves enablement. What do we have that the Faithful believers in the Old Testament did not have. We have the indwelling Holy Spirit, whereby we may say, Lord, help me this day to be, Ephesians 5, filled with the Spirit, and help me this day, Galatians 5, to demonstrate love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We don't have to walk around frustrated. I, I want to do those things, I just can't. No, the New Testament believer says, I want to do those things and I can 
because the Spirit of God indwelling me, I may, I may simply make the decision to demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit. That's why the law of Christ is so phenomenal under the, the new covenant. We are free of... Uh, whoop, lost the last slide there. We are free of the Mosaic law, but not free of all law. There's a, a much debated phrase, which I think is mostly misused. And that is, well, I am free in Christ. What are you free to do? Free in Christ does not mean free to do whatever I want. Free in Christ means I'm free to obey the law of Christ because the Holy Spirit has enabled me to do so. That's what free in Christ means. It means I'm free from the constraints of the Mosaic law. Nobody can put me under that. But it does not mean I may do whatever I want. We still call people to obedience. And what do we do when they won't obey? We discipline them out of the church because they don't get to be part of God's fellowship if they're going to say, I'm free in Christ and it means I can do whatever I want. You can't do whatever you want. The law of Christ reiterates and expands on much of the Old Testament law, but it's a new contract. And I'm going to see if I can, I don't know if these slides disappeared into somewhere. Maybe, oh, that's it. Okay, well, supposedly I had two more. But I'll I'll do one last thing here. The law of Christ is a binding obligation under an unconditional covenant. Just because the covenant is unconditional doesn't mean there aren't rules. So I'm going to boil all this down to two concepts. Okay, here, I'll even close my notes. Two concepts. First, the concept of the unconditional covenant and the law of Christ. And the second, the concept of salvation and the law of Christ. The unconditional covenant and the law of Christ. People will say, well, I'm under the new covenant. I'm I'm free in Christ. I can do whatever I want because God can never kick me out of the family. I I have assurance of salvation. I am saved, once saved, always saved, etc., etc. I can't be kicked out of the kingdom. Therefore, I can do whatever I want. I would maintain, and I think Paul would maintain, that the, the professing believer that actually believes they can do whatever they want was never saved to begin with. So what does it mean? Here's the here's first concept, simple to understand. Many of you in this room have had children. And this, you hold this little baby in your arms and you think nothing can ever make me reject you. That child will be part of your family forever. That child bears your name. That child bears your likeness, for better or for worse, whatever that is. That child is part of your family. And as that child's growing up, you tell that child, you will always be mine. You will always be part of my family. I will never reject you. Spank you? Yes. Discipline you? Yes. Make your life miserable under my curse if you won't take my blessings? Yes. But kick you out? No. So to say that being under the new covenant means I do whatever I want is a misnomer. We are under the law of Christ. It is my job every single Lord's Day to call you to obey the law of Christ, right? That's the first concept. Think of the family. Here's the second concept. This is the most important one. This is all of it in a nutshell. You ready? In the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, an Israelite, was saved by grace through faith in God with the promise of a coming Savior that they understood would pay for their sins. In the meantime, how do they show their love for God? By obeying the law of Moses. In the New Covenant, 
A believer is saved by grace through faith in Christ and he shows his love for God based on obeying the law of Christ. Saved by faith, obey the law of Moses. Saved by faith, obey the law of Christ. New covenant, old covenant. Got it? All right. Some call that leaky dispensationalism. I would just call that what the Bible teaches. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, for grace. From Genesis 1 through Revelation 22, the Bible is filled with grace and the Bible is filled with law. And they work together. They go side by side. You save us by grace and you give us a law with which to demonstrate our love to you. A law which teaches us how to live in a way that's pleasing to you and beneficial to us. Help us, Lord, whenever we're reading in the Old Testament law to be thankful that we're not under that law and yet to learn your character. To look forward to a day when all of the world is turned into a society under God for real. Where we may literally go to Jerusalem and visit face to face with our God, Jesus Christ. We look forward to that day, Lord. Let us um, look forward to it with anticipation and with obedience to the law of Christ. Let us as a church be characterized as obedient believers who love your law. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.